Hello, I'm Vicki Banks. And in the midweek teaching for the last several weeks, we have been studying the book of Mark. Now Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's the second gospel that focuses exclusively on Jesus's life and his ministry here on earth when he was here originally. By the time we get to Mark chapter 12, we are at a very interesting time in history because this is the last week of Jesus's life, what's commonly referred to as the Passion Week. And we're gonna see that the tension is really mounting between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders, the teachers of the law, they are not happy with him. He is continuing to really reveal the fact that he is far wiser to what scripture teaches and to who God is than they are. And he's also constantly really kind of revealing the dark underbelly of who they are. We see him revealing them as self-centered, as deceitful, hypocritical, and really not even worthy of leading God's people. And as you can imagine, they are not happy with that characterization whatsoever. In chapter 11, we have just seen Jesus literally clean house at the temple where he has driven out all of the money changers and, and the sellers that are taking advantage of God's people and are really leading them astray from just a wholehearted devotion to him. And so they are not happy about this whatsoever. And the chapter really ends with them actually challenging Jesus's authority and demanding to know by whose authority is he doing all of these things. Now he doesn't answer them directly, but what he does is he tells them a parable. And that brings us to our focal passage today in Mark chapter 12, verses one through 12. So I'm gonna read that to us and then we're kind of gonna take it apart. So let me tell you as you're looking for that passage. Now, this is a parable. And a parable is just a simple story that really shares a moral or a spiritual principle. And Jesus has taught in parables pretty much ever since they accused him of casting out demons in Satan's name by his power. And so, but here at the climax of Jesus's ministry, something is very different about his parable teaching. Now, normally when he talks in parables to the religious leaders, he's disguising kind of part of the truth that he knows they can't handle, that they're not ready to take. But in this parable, you'll see in verse 12, it is crystal clear to the religious leaders and the teachers of the law that he's talking about them and that he is accusing them in this passage. So this is also, that's very unusual. Another thing that's unusual about this parable is that it, it's an allegory. And an allegory is where all of the characters, the setting, the, the scene itself, the event, they all represent very specific things. So I want you to remember that as we're reading this passage. The vineyard in the passage and all of the players in this story represent very specific people in the context of Jesus's ministry. So this isn't just a regular parable kind of teaching. Jesus is addressing it to the religious leaders. He is exposing their hostile intentions and he's very much warning them about the coming judgment that they're going to experience. You're also gonna see the entire salvation history play out here, culminating in the climax of Jesus coming, of his death, and then his ultimate vindication. So let's look at the passage and then we'll take it apart. I'm reading in Mark chapter 12, verses one through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and he built a tower and he leased it to tenants and went away into another country. When the seasons came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent 
to them another servant. And they struck him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they had him killed, and so with many others. Some were beat, some were killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? And then he quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, the, they were seeking to arrest him, talking back again about the religious leaders of the day. But they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. So, verse 1, we see here that he begins to speak to them in this parable. Uh, he, a man planted a vineyard, he puts a fence around it, and he digs a pit for the wine press, and he builds a tower, leasing it to the tenants, and then he went to another country. Now, this would be a very common scene to these people in this kind of uh, very Mediterranean kind of landscape where they're living at the time. Leased vineyards to others was very common in Galilee with all of the large landed estates and with the absentee landowners. So this scene, this story is very easy for them all to picture. The vineyard is representative of Israel and God's people. Now we see all throughout the Old Testament that God refers to his people as a vineyard. And he often refers to her leaders as not really being good guardians of her care, which is what Jesus is doing in this parable as well. Now the man, the landlord in this vineyard, obviously is representative of God and of his relationship to the nation of Israel, to his people. The wall is, I mean, he not only gives people, and he not only plants his people, but he gives them a wall for protection. The tower is representative of strength, of sustenance, of shelter, of storage, security. And these tenant farmers, these are Israel's religious leaders of today. These are the teachers of the law that Jesus is directing this story to. And their job is supposed to be to cultivate and care for God's vineyard, to cultivate and care for his people, to bear good fruit and to offer that fruit back to him. Fruit like repentance and godly living, but that is definitely not what these leaders are encouraging. They are being self-righteous, they are being uh, hypocritical, they are not doing their job well. And that brings us to verse two. Now in verse two, we read here that, whoops, excuse me, I turned two pages instead of one. In verse 2, we see that uh, he has sent back, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this servant is representative of the prophets that God keeps sending to the people here. These are agents that represent God here on earth, and their role is to fulfill God's wishes. So that's what they're supposed to be doing. This really points out to me that God expects us to be fruitful. He expects us to offer good fruit back to him. Now, these tenant farmers, who are really the legalistic religious leaders listening, they are definitely not giving the fruit back to God. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. 
And they took him and they beat him and they sent this servant away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head. They treat him shamefully. He sends another and they kill him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they kill, but they are mistreating absolutely all of them here. So it's easy to read this passage and to think why in the world would the landlord keep sending people, keep sending representatives of himself to these people when he knows they're going to mistreat them. But think about it. Isn't that exactly what God has done? He has done that very thing. He has continued to send prophets, messengers and messengers to his people, warning them of the need for repentance and how to really live lives that truly honor him and that are for their very best. But the people continue to mistreat them. Well, so that's what's happened in the past. That's clearly what's happening now. That is what these religious leaders are doing to God's representatives from the Old Testament prophets all the way up to just now beheading John the Baptist. They are continuing to mistreat God's prophets and God's messengers here. So this faith fruitfulness is really kind of linked to uh, a spiritual stewardship, if you will. And we see that the leaders, they had a responsibility to care for the well-being of the people, but that's not what they're doing. They, they are not wanting to return good fruits back to God. So they're getting ready to incur some pretty harsh judgment there. So that brings us to verse 6 where we see that the owner then sends his son, his very own son. And look at how he refers to his son here. He had still one other, a beloved son. Now this phrase, beloved son, this is the same phrase that God used in referring to Jesus at his baptism and then also again at his ascension. So God sends his beloved son to them. Now, when I, when I read this, I can't help but think of one of the first passages I ever memorized, Romans 5.8, which says, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this passage, as well as Romans 5.8 and many others remind me, God sent Jesus for you and for I when we didn't deserve him. So this parable, this allegory is very much in keeping with how God has, how God has lived and how he has related to you and I. He is continuing trying to come for us and he has even sent his son when we clearly did not deserve him. Paul talks about this later in, uh, in the New Testament several ways. One passage that sticks out to me is the passage in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 and 5 that says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. So this is in keeping, like I said, with how God still relates to you and I here. Okay, that brings us to verses seven and verses eight. But these tenants, they said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. So the tenants, they are refusing to submit to the son in this story, just as the religious leaders listening are refusing to submit to Jesus as God's son. The murder of the landowner's son in the story obviously parallels with the crucifixion that's getting ready to come for Jesus himself. And that takes us to verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So what is God going to do? 
what is the owner going to do? He is going to take the vineyard and he is going to give it to others. Now this allegory is starting to sound more and more real. I'm imagining that the religious leaders, it's getting a little hot under the collar and they are really starting to get uncomfortable here because Jesus is revealing divine judgment is going to come on those who reject him. And that brings us to a beautiful part of this passage in verses 10 and 11. And it starts out with Jesus asking them a rhetorical question. Have you not read this scripture? And then he quotes directly from an Old Testament passage, Psalm 118. A beautiful passage saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he is shifting this allegory from an architectural type of, from a agricultural theme to more of an architectural type theme here. In Psalm 118, this is clearly recognized by the Jewish people as a messianic psalm. By that I mean they know that this psalm is referring to Jesus himself. So when he says, when he quotes this passage, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, the religious leaders know that he is talking about himself. And that means he's, he's talking about himself as the son who is here representing his father. So this is getting very uncomfortable here. Now this stone that was cast aside, the cornerstone is supposed to be the most important stone in a building. So what Jesus is saying is that the stone that you're wanting to cast aside, this is the most important stone of all and that I will be vindicated. So clearly they're not liking this. And the second part of that passage that he quoted in verse 11, this was the Lord's doing. He wants the religious leaders to know, now all your nefarious plans and plots against me, I am not a victim to them. There is a sovereign God at play here and he's got bigger things in mind. And so he is letting them know that God's bigger purposes is at play no matter what they try to do to him. So very, very important, uh, very important point here. Now that brings us to verse 12, the last verse in our passage here. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and they went away. So they, the ruling priests, the ruling uh, leaders of God's uh, law of the day, they recognize here that this passage is about them. Now this is the third of four statements in the book of Mark that refer to the religious leaders all wanting to either kill or at least arrest Jesus. So it's becoming kind of a common theme here. But they're really fearful of him because of the huge crowds that he's amassing in his teaching. So what they are now going to do, they're going to kind of shift their way and they are going to try to undermine Jesus's authority to the people. And eventually they're going to enlist a betrayer in Judas. But this parable, this allegory also answers the questions that the religious leaders asked him at the end of chapter 11. Remember they were demanding, by whose authority is it that you are doing the things that you're doing, that you're healing people, that you're turning the temple upside down of the money changers and the things we're doing? Whose authority? Well, they recognize themselves in the story, so I'm thinking they have got to be recognizing who Jesus says he is, that he is God's representative come, and that there is going to be all sorts of pandemonium to pay for not accepting him as who God says he is. 
So what are the big takeaways for you and I today? There are three things that kind of stand out to me. One is the persistent love and the persistent grace of God. No matter how the leaders of the day react, God keeps coming for his people. He keeps sending messengers and messages. He wants the people to know who he really is. He wants them to experience the benefits of repentance and the benefits of, of really godly living. That He wants them not to miss out on the purity of devotion to him. Same thing for you and I. God continues to come to us with his grace, with his love. He is very persistent in tracking us down, and I am so very grateful for that. A second thing that stands out to me is that God expects us to bear good fruit. He ex we are to be accounted for how we steward what it is and who it is that he has given us to invest in. We are to be accounted for that. We are to offer good fruit back to God. And, and to continually do that. And then a third thing that stands out to me is that God will eventually judge those who reject and dishonor his son because dishonoring Jesus is dishonoring God. So let's make sure that you and I, let's make sure that we respond far better to God's messages and his messengers than the tenant farmers in the story, than the religious leaders and teachers of the law of the day that are actually hearing it. Let's make sure we respond far better. Second, let's invest well in the spiritual health of those that God entrusts to us. Let's bear good fruit with these lives we've given. Let's not just hoard the gifts and the investment that he makes into our life, but let's bear good fruit that we offer back to him. And then third and finally, this Christmas, let's make sure that we accept and we honor the son that he so lovingly sent to you and I. Now that is a Merry Christmas. God bless.